This is Spark Politics, and I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. When you hear the word fascism, who's the first person you think of? If you're like most people, the answer is probably Hitler, which makes sense. His name alone has become synonymous with the term. It's easy to believe that even with all the good and great leaders of the 20th century, Hitler's name and legacy might just outlive them all. He'll always be a reminder of the impact that one truly evil person is capable of. But even though Hitler may be the most infamous fascist, I don't think he's the most important, especially when you consider what the aims of this series have been. Fascism isn't just well-ordered marching, goose-stepping, and strict rules. It's also a rebellion, a rejection of the kinds of norms and values that societies depend on to function. That's why it's possible to arrive at the conclusion that fascism is the answer from either the left or the right. So for this episode, I'm going to profile one of the most notorious fascists of all. A man who started on the left and through the combination of bitter disappointment and unchecked ego ended up someplace far different and far darker. I'm talking about Benito Mussolini, better known as El Duce. Let's begin. So if the only thing you know about Mussolini is that he was the guy who ran Italy when World War II was lost, then this next section may be a bit of a shock to you because he was so much more than that. He was a college-educated school teacher, a man sharp enough to have taught himself French and German, and well-read enough to be fluent in philosophers like Plato, Marx, and Kant. If he had been born in our times, it's easy to imagine a young Mussolini dishing out sharp retorts on Twitter, collecting likes and retweets as he name-dropped the kinds of authors most of us only talk about reading. He was a writer publishing the sort of essays about politics and philosophy that you would expect from any young and aspiring intellectual. But did you know that he also co-wrote a romance novel? It's called The Cardinal's Mistress, and that's exactly what it's about, an illicit affair between a clergyman and his lady love. Not a surprising topic for a man who's personal relationship with Catholicism would range from outright hostility to extreme disdain for most of his adult life. And he was a socialist like his father. Early in his life, his views sounded almost like the kinds of things you hear in many left-wing circles today. He supported workers' rights, unions, direct action protest, and was willing to stand against the imperialism that he believed was suppressing the common people around the globe. I say almost because Mussolini also possessed a darkness that will land him in jail for advocating the use of violence. And it's this belief in violence that would cause him to break with his socialist allies and set him down a different path. But before we go down that path with him, allow me to take a detour. Often, we think of history's worst people as irredeemable, 
we imagine that there must have been something so broken in them that from a young age, it should have been clear to everyone that they were crooked. That's rarely the case, though. If you pause Mussolini's story right before World War I, then what you see is a bright, educated, cultured, passionate, and talented young man dedicated to the rights of workers and the common good. Now, is he willing to consider more radical methods? Yes, but that's one of the allowances we grant to all young people. There's a world where instead of becoming one of the leaders of fascism, his talents were put to a better use, one that might have allowed him to be a force for good. So what happened? World War I. As we've seen throughout all of history, wars have a tendency to push people into positions they never thought possible. For Italian socialists, that's exactly what the First World War did. For some, standing against the war was a matter of not involving themselves in the affairs of the nations that, to them, represented oppression. For others, the war represented an opportunity, promising a chance to usher in the kind of social revolution that might otherwise take decades to accomplish. I think you can guess what side Benito fell on. With no less fervor than he had supported pure socialism with, he began supporting a national revolution. And he joined the ranks of the Italian military, serving on the front lines in battle for nearly a year and eventually reaching the rank of corporal. This wasn't a man who did things half-heartedly. Unfortunately for the world, by the time his service in the military was done, the man who believed in equality had vanished, replaced by one who saw strength, might, and dominance as the only path to his goals. From there, his journey starts to resemble the one you may be more familiar with. The establishment of a fascist party. The racism. The strong man approach to grabbing power and the any means necessary way that he would hold on to it. Capped with the inevitable totalitarianism that would define his time as a leader of Italy. Now, I don't want to gloss over that part of his journey because there are a lot of lessons that can be learned. But I also think that by the time a man like Mussolini shows up with his black shirts who were nothing more than violent thugs and starts forcefully enforcing his rule, your country is already way too far down the road to fascism. If you've ever heard the saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, then that's what we're aiming for here. We need to understand what turns a person from an egalitarian leftist into a terrifying authoritarian. And we need to understand how he got so many people to go along with him. Fortunately, the answers are somewhat intertwined. So in case you've forgotten, or if you never listened to it in the first place, at the end of the first episode in this series, I told a story about my dealings with the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, my fairly simple problem of my phone number being tied up in someone else's debt problem turned into hours of conversation that years later 
is still completely unresolved. The point of the story was that the frustrating slowness of government that we all experience is actually a defense mechanism built into government itself. But this mechanism causes problems of its own, especially in large democracies like ours or in nations where the tension level is already very high. In those circumstances, the system stagnates, leading to paralyzing gridlock. And that was the condition that Italy found itself in after World War I. See, governments around the world had printed money to fight the war, and when the war ended, the bill came due. Inflation skyrocketed. Savings were destroyed. Weapon manufacturers had nobody left to buy their goods. And soldiers returned home only to find that there weren't any jobs waiting for them. As Mussolini had anticipated, World War I created the perfect pressure cooker. Now, if this sounds like the last episode, then that's the point. Just as Huey Long took advantage of the Great Depression to execute a power grab in America, Mussolini took advantage of post-war scarcity to do the same. And while I've avoided mentioning Hitler in this discussion, it's worth pointing out now that the economic punishments inflicted on Germany for their role in World War I ended up being a major reason for his rise. When the Nazis took over, unemployment in Germany had risen to 30%, a level which all but guaranteed a rise in extremist ideologies. But every one of the scenarios I mentioned was also difficult to avoid, much less solve. It wasn't the government of Italy's fault that World War I started. Remember, in that war, they fought on the side of the Allied powers against Germany. So their reward for being on the right side of history was the creation of economic conditions that made the destruction of their government much more likely. Similarly, Germany really did deserve to face severe sanctions for their role in a war that led to 40 million military and civilian casualties. But those punishments set the stage for a war that will lead to 80 million more. So by solving one problem, the table ended up being set for something much worse. And once that happens, it's easy for someone confident, charismatic, and full of solutions to come along and promise to make it right. And all you have to do is give up a little bit of that freedom that's not doing you much good anyway. In the first three episodes of this series, it may have seemed like everything I was talking about was theoretical. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, their words, teachings, and warnings seem like they exist only on paper and have no real relevance to us today. In fact, there are increasingly people who believe that such men with their faults and flaws can't possibly have anything left to teach us. The danger in that isn't always clear, but if you followed along with me this far, then I think you can begin to see it now. Warnings about tyranny and demagogues aren't to be taken lightly. It's easy to say, if only the government would do what's right, 
we wouldn't have to worry about it. But as I just illustrated, even if the right thing to do is obvious, there's always a chance that it can lead to unexpected and disastrous outcomes. Asking governments to quote unquote, always do what's right is asking the impossible. It's setting expectations so high that no government will ever be able to clear the bar. Of course, expectations shouldn't be zero either. If we ask for too little, then we'll never get much of anything. And if this all sounds confusing, that's because it is. Democracy is a strange thing. It requires competence and trustworthiness from our leaders, decency and cooperation from a whole host of people who have plenty of reasons to be at each other's throats. But it also requires temperance, moderation, and wisdom from the crowd. The recognition that while it may be disappointing that you didn't get what you want, learning to live with that disappointment is an essential part of the process. We have to push hard without pushing the entire thing off the cliff. Leaders have to respect our wishes without becoming spineless doormats. Everyone has to be guided by their principles, even though they don't all believe in the same principles, and even though society is constantly shifting and discarding old principles while picking up new ones. And every two years, all of this comes together. The stakes are raised to the highest level possible. And we somehow have to get along no matter what happens. But the struggle is worth it. Like Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. As always, I want to encourage you all to continue the discussion on our social media pages, either on Facebook or Instagram. Like all of our shows here, this podcast is brought to you in part by Eliag Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians and Pointcast News. To listen to any of our podcasts, you can visit our website at pointcast.news or subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And make sure you join us next time.